Okay, so coming back to the theme of the workshop, balancing effort and enjoyment. Another reason that I chose this particular theme is because early in my own meditation practice, these two words, effort and enjoyment, just did not go together. And then as I moved into the teaching role, I started to see that this was often an experience for other people too. And as I was teaching in different communities around the world, there was a quite a common question that people would ask me. And they would often ask, how do you stay motivated in practice? How do you keep the momentum of practice going? And often I would ask them, well, what do you enjoy about your practice? And often the response will be one of confusion, as if it hadn't even occurred to people that their practice might be something that could be enjoyed. And yet when we look at the teachings of the Buddha in more depth, we see that the mental state of joy is actually a significant aspect of his teachings. And even though people were often surprised when I asked them about what they enjoyed about the practice, pretty much everyone has had some experience of joy or happiness. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't keep going at all. And there does seem to be a common arc in the practice that when we first learn about meditation or when we first start to explore the Buddha's teachings, there's a kind of a honeymoon phase. And it feels like every time we pick up a Dharma book, it magically falls open to just the right page with exactly the right words on it, exactly what we needed to hear in that moment. And every time we sit down to meditate, it feels new and fresh and exciting, big adventure. And we look forward to our next meditation retreat and we bore all our friends with our excitement about all things Dharma. But then, because of the impermanence that all of the Buddha's teachings point to, this phase doesn't last. And at some point, the novelty wears off. Things start to get a little stale. It might start to feel like it takes more and more effort to keep a regular meditation practice going. And perhaps eventually we stop trying altogether. The honeymoon is over. And perhaps what we don't understand is that just like with any marriage or any long-term partnership, we need to get creative if the relationship is going to last. We all know that relationships take effort, but it can't only be about that. There has to be enjoyment if it's going to be sustainable. So this marriage of effort and enjoyment is what I'm interested in cultivating today. So again, in my own practice, after that initial honeymoon period had worn off, it took me a while to realize that my meditation had become a kind of chore. It had turned into just one more thing to have to fit into a busy day. And it became just one more thing to judge myself about when I didn't manage to do it. 
And this drudgery kept in, crept in without me even realizing. Because as I was saying earlier, I was so used to just paying attention to the breath and the body that I wasn't really paying attention to the mind and especially not to the underlying emotions and moods and assumptions that were actually coloring my whole practice. And then I went on a nine-day retreat and started to recognize the importance of these often hidden assumptions and beliefs. So the first few days of that nine-day retreat were hard. As many of you know, there's often phases of struggle with physical discomfort, mental hindrances such as aversion and restlessness and boredom and doubt. But on this retreat, I think it was on about the fourth day, I suddenly dropped into a state of real ease and mental lightness, actual some moments of bliss. And at that point, I hadn't experienced anything like that on retreat before. So it was deeply enjoyable. And then, of course, because of impermanence, in the very next meditation period, all of that changed. And I found myself back in states that were not so pleasant. And at that point, I heard myself think. I knew it. Back to reality. In other words, I was taking my unpleasant experiences to be more real than the pleasant ones. And this was the first time I saw my own bias towards the unpleasant so clearly. And later on, working with meditators, I started to see that many people had a similar bias. And this is partly because just biologically, we are hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant. So as many of you know, with neuroscience research these days, Rick Hansen came up with that catchy phrase that our brains are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. In other words, what's unpleasant tends to stick in our minds and what's pleasant tends to slide right off. So most of us have a tendency to pay more attention to the unpleasant than the pleasant. And so just for that reason, it can be good training to consciously tune in to pleasant experiences every now and then. And when we do that, we might discover there's actually more of them happening than we may have consciously realized. So that's why at the end of the last meditation, I invited you just to notice, is there anything that you can appreciate or enjoy about that meditation? So we have this basic biological bias towards the unpleasant. And then we often add a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning on top of it too. So again, in my own practice, when I started to investigate this, when I got curious about it, I discovered that I had this basic assumption that the spiritual path was supposed to be unpleasant. Because if I was enjoying something, then almost by definition, it couldn't be spiritual, could it? Now, I'm guessing that this partly came from my Christian upbringing. And that's not to say that all of Christianity is like this. But as a teenager, 
what I heard was a kind of a Puritanism that equates any kind of enjoyment with sin. And then when I first started getting interested in Buddhism, sometimes the way the Buddha's teachings were presented really didn't help. So, for example, with the teaching on the Four Noble Truths that we're touching into today, these teachings are intended to lead to complete freedom of heart and mind, the deepest possible happiness that human beings can experience. And it's taken me quite a while to appreciate the depth and the subtlety and the beauty of these teachings because the way they're sometimes presented can sound something like, usually sounds something like this. The first noble truth, there is suffering. Second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering. Third noble truth, there is a way out of suffering. Fourth noble truth, there's a path which leads to the end of suffering. So I don't know about you, but the first few times that I heard the truths presented like this, what my mind hooked onto was the word suffering. So what I heard was something like this, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering. And unconsciously, I picked up the belief that Buddhism is all about suffering. Now, again, this is partly because of that hardwired biological bias to focus on the unpleasant, the suffering, more than the end of suffering part. But still, it reinforced this idea in me that it was somehow noble to suffer and that if meditation was painful, uncomfortable or disturbing, then I was doing the real work. And conversely, if my experiences were neutral or actually pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong, not working hard enough, not seeing clearly enough, not going deep enough. Now, it is definitely true that the Buddha warned us over and over not to get attached to sense pleasures. But in my own case, I was so afraid of getting attached to enjoyment that for a while I tried to avoid feeling any kind of pleasantness in meditation. And what I wasn't seeing was that I was actually attached to non-attachment. And I wasn't able to recognize that this is a form of wrong view. The wrong view that pleasant experiences automatically lead to attachment. And if you've been through that phase of practice yourselves, you know that when it's grounded in this wrong view, it's actually very hard to sustain momentum. The practice becomes dry and painful, and usually after a while we stop practicing altogether. So if you have been finding it difficult to keep meditating regularly, or if you feel like you've somehow got stuck and you're not making any progress, you might like to just investigate if there is some underlying attitude that's getting in the way. And again, if you do find some kind of unbalance, remember that the Buddha too 
took quite a while to find the balanced approach of the middle way. So just coming back to the story of his life for a moment, remembering he spent many years practicing those very grueling austerity practices and that it wasn't until he was in constant pain and actually close to death that he finally realized he wasn't achieving freedom. And it's said that after he pretty much collapsed from exhaustion and was pretty close to dying, the turning point was when he remembered a pleasant experience that he'd had as a young boy. So the texts describe how he was about seven or eight years old, and it's said that he was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, watching his father, the king, take part in a harvest festival. And because perhaps it was pleasantly cool in the shade of that rose apple tree, his body and mind relaxed so much that he spontaneously dropped into the first jhana. Now, the jhanas are states of mental absorption that are very pleasant, deeply refreshing. And so it was at this point that as an adult, the Buddha-to-be started to wonder if perhaps he'd been approaching this quest for freedom in the wrong way. And he recognized that actually his fear of pleasure had been the obstacle to awakening. So according to the texts, he thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. So it was at this point that he realized that mental pleasure was what had been missing from this whole search. And it's said that not long after this realization, he did attain complete nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. And I find this story very interesting because it points to the relationship between pleasant physical experiences, pleasant mental experiences, and spiritual progress. So if the young boy hadn't been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, would he have been relaxed enough for his mind to spontaneously slip into jhana? Maybe not. And later... When the Buddha was an adult, it was his enjoyment of that memory that led him to full awakening. So just to be clear, it's not that the Buddha is recommending that we chase after pleasant physical experiences for their own sake. Not at all. But when pleasant physical experiences naturally arise, we can use them to support our well-being. Because if the body is relaxed and at ease, then it's much easier to develop a calm, clear mind. And a calm, clear mind is necessary for the deepest insights to arise. And in the same way, when we're relaxed and at ease, we're more likely to relate to ourselves and to others with kindness. So we can consciously use pleasant mental experiences as a resource to support balanced practice. 
one that leads to the deepest freedom of heart and mind, which is what we're progressing towards moment by moment here today. So that might be a good place just to stop and to hear. Are there any questions or comments about the role of enjoyment in your own Dharma practice so far? Thank you for your attention.